0: Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to a special Labor Day edition of LiveWire. This week, our theme is making it work. And we've got all kinds of guests who've had to make it work in their lives and careers in one way or another. People like Eric Weyhenmere. Eric lost his sight as a teenager, but he decided that was not going to limit what he was able to do. And so he figured out how to do all kinds of amazing things, including climbing Mount Everest, that's right. He's the first blind person to ever summit Mount Everest. And he's done all kinds of other amazing things, which you'll hear about coming up. Plus, we're going to talk to a woman named Lila Jana. Lila Jana had an idea. She wondered if there was a way that she could help create tech jobs for people who are living in extreme poverty, often in developing countries, people living on less than $2 a day. But she figured out somehow how to make it work. So we've got all that, plus a bunch more for you coming up this hour. Now, listen, I I haven't climbed Mount Everest or elevated people out of poverty, but I have to say I have sort of had to make it work in my own radio way before, including on this very program. Back in 2013, it was a Saturday morning, and I was booked to be a guest on Livewire. And I got a call to say the real host of the show is not feeling well, and would I consider filling in as the host of the show? So I got in my car and I drove down to Portland and I got there right before the show was about to start. And I basically walked onto the stage at the Oberta Theater with basically no preparation. And I just started talking to the crowd. And here's what that sounded like. As you may have already noticed, I am not Courtney Hameister, I am Luke Burbank, I'm sort of a last minute fill-in, which is bad news for you guys, but kind of great news for me because one of the items on my bucket list is to see an entire theater of people look disappointed simultaneously, <laughs> to scratch that right off the list. <laughs> Pinch hitting can be a little challenging, so I figured I'd turn to the wisdom of the best pinch hitter in the history of Major League Baseball, which it turns out is a guy named William Gates Brown. He played for the Detroit Tigers back in the 1960s and 70s. He was actually doing time for burglary in 1959, and he joined the prison baseball team, and he was so good that the coach of the prison team called the Detroit Tigers, and they got him paroled one year early (laughs) so that he could play baseball. Gates has the uh, record for the most pinch hits ever, but maybe his most famous one came on August 7th, 1968. He wasn't in the starting lineup, and so he ordered a couple of hot dogs. But then the manager of the team, a guy named Mayo Smith. Side note, everyone had way better names back in the olden days. Mayo Smith told him he was pinch hitting. And so he hides the hot dogs in his jersey because he's worried about getting in trouble for eating in the dugout. And he goes up to the plate, and he hits a double that necessitates sliding into second base. (laughs) Head first. And when he stands up, he has smashed hot dog, mustard, and ketchup all over his jersey. Weirdly, I was about to eat a sloppy joe right before they tapped me to fill in on Livewire. So, really, though, the trick to filling in at anything, it would seem, is just kind of faking it until you make it. And I have tons of experience in this department. Uh, I became a father when I was 17, because I felt like it was time. Um, Just done the whole junior year thing, sort of ready. I remember driving in the car with my daughter, Addie, when she was about four years old, uh, and she turned to me and she asked, Daddy, are we the same age? (laughs) And when I was a kid, I think I thought that my parents had sort of a handbook, you know, like an owner's manual or something, that they would go read in bed at night, you know, that had like instructions for what to do when... Say, for example, your 10-year-old son racks up thousands of dollars in charges calling a recorded phone sex line because it was summer and he was bored. Of course, there is no such manual, and you're kind of making it up as you go along, and just when you think you're really getting the hang of it, they become teenagers. And here's the thing, okay? Teenagers are emotional Ponzi schemes. They are basically the Bernie Madoffs of love. <laughs> you invest all of this like energy and time and worry into them and you think you're going to get a return. <laughs> and one day they tell you, I made up all the paperwork. Okay, <laughs> You're not getting any of this back. But then they get older and they go to college and one day they send you a text that says cleaning my dorm room and listening to Wilco, which makes me think of you, and you feel like you could jump up and high-five the sun. So, yeah, I guess it's pretty worth it. Like life, this show is going to have some highs. It's probably going to have some lows, which we will edit out. But it's going to be a fun adventure. We're all improvising our way through this world, and the key seems to be to circle the bases, ending up with the minimum amount of hot dog, mustard, and ketchup on our uniforms. So that's that's me, Luke Burbank, during my very first appearance on Livewire uh, way back in 2013. By the way, this is Livewire from PRI. Our theme this week is making it work. And I'm actually surprisingly okay with my my first performance on Livewire. I had to really make it work, but it, it came out okay. Still, that has nothing on the accomplishments of Eric Weihemeyer. So he lost his sight as a teenager, but that did not stop him from pursuing his dreams. Uh, Stuff like climbing Mount Everest. Um, His other thing he likes to do is kayak in extremely rough conditions, like kayaking the Grand Canyon. So suffice to say, Eric is a pretty amazing person who's really figured out how to make it work in his life. I'm super excited for you to hear his story. I sat down with him recently and we talked about it. Uh, Take a listen to this. Eric Weimer, welcome to Livewire. Cool, thanks. How old were you when you lost your sight?
1: Well, it was was progressive, I, I was born legally blind. So I couldn't see very well, but I could see well enough to function. And then I was diagnosed with this disease they said had no cure. And so I went blind totally just about a week or two before my freshman year in high school. And then starting freshman year of high school as a newly blinded person. Uh, where do I start there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, what was that like? I mean, high school is tremendously intimidating for anyone. Everybody's at their most insecure, and now you're dealing with not being able to see. I mean, what was that like for you?
1: I was angry, so I didn't want anyone to help me. So, you know, I'm stumbling along using this cane incorrectly, and, you know, I felt like I was inside this prison. But, you know, looking back, obviously, I know that it was partly self-induced.
0: When did things start to turn around for you? When did you start to figure out this new way that you were going to live your life?
1: Um, When I was a kid, acceptance started happening, you know, just falling down enough stairs and banging my head against the wall enough and having these barriers confront me that I finally just said, look, this blindness thing, it's bigger than me and I'm not going to quote unquote beat it. I'm not going to quote unquote overcome it you know, you can influence a lot of things in your life, but you have to accept certain things as well. And it's a balancing act between the two. So I started investigating what were the things in my life that I could influence. And by doing that, I started being able to push the parameters. And uh, I got this newsletter in Braille of this group taking blind kids rock climbing. And I just loved it so much because I sat on this rock face way up above the valley floor and I'm starting to use this thing called echolocation, which is where you click and you can hear the sound of space in front of you, sound vibrations moving out, bouncing off of objects coming back at you. And so I was like practicing at that time and I was listening to the valley below me and I could hear the the rocks around me. I could hear the trees. I could hear the leaves blowing through the trees. And I just thought this is intense beauty. I can't see what's out there, but... I can experience it in a different way and I can climb in a different way uh, and I have to sort of create that way but I get to the top nevertheless.
0: We're talking to Eric Weyenmaier by the way, this is LiveWire, his book is No Barriers. Um, when did the idea come to you to try to climb Mount Everest as a blind person?
1: Well, it was a very gradual process <laughs> and I had a friend who we'd go out in the desert of Arizona climbing every weekend And one weekend we were climbing and he said, we should try something bigger. And I said, well, like what? Like maybe a little bigger rock face? He said, no, how about Denali? And I thought, well, that's really big and totally different from rock climbing. But I got really excited about that idea. So we went around training for a year and a half. We didn't summit anything. We failed and floundered on every mountain, but 1995. Wait, so
0: you're, let me just get this straight. Your run up to trying to climb Denali, was a bunch of practice climbs in which you were totally unsuccessful. Completely unsuccessful. So why did this unsuccessful. Give you the confidence to, why did you guys continue to go with the idea of trying to climb Denali?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I and mean, so my friend had attention deficit disorder. So he brain didn't always work like linear. And I love that. So he'd make these big leaps and he'd said, okay, we haven't summoned anything, but let's go climb Long's Peak in January. That's a big 14,000 foot peak in Colorado. Really snowy, really windy. And we tried that thing. We didn't get anywhere near the summit. We just, there were 100-mile-an-hour winds knocking us off our feet, slamming us back down. We ran out of there with our tail between our legs. And uh, this guy's name was Sam. I thought, Sam, if if we can survive this, we can do anything. And so uh, it was probably 30 years old when I decided to speak the idea of Everest out loud. Like, one of the big steps is just say it out loud to people because you feel like such an idiot when you say it for the first time because it's just... You, you're you like thinking in your brain, surely this is not me saying this.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do for anybody. And you throw out the fact that you're not going to actually be able to see when you're up there. And it just seems like a
1: recipe for disaster. It does on the surface. And there were a lot of like Himalayan experts who said I would go up there and kill myself and have to subject myself to horrendous risk and draw everyone on the mountain into a rescue and on and on and on. And then I realized that all those people were judging me on the basis of not knowing me. They just knew one thing about me. And I thought, how ridiculously unfair is that? Blindness, of course, is a huge factor in whether you're successful in the mountains or not, like anything, but it's not the only thing. You know, Your preparation, your team, your skill, your talent, all these things come into play. But these guys were judging me on the basis of just knowing that I was blind. So I was like, sort of like offended by that. And my team, said, you know, we've climbed with you. You're more prepared than 90% of anyone who comes to this mountain and uh, you have a real shot. So uh, of course I had fears. One of them was that, you know, you go into what's called the death zone and you know, you don't have enough oxygen to really think. And I use my brain so much when I'm climbing, like how can I get down from this situation? You know, what's the weather doing? Uh, And so if I can't think at that altitude and I can't see, Is that gonna be an overwhelming combination? But as it turned out, my summit day, I felt really cognizant climbing over the knife edge ridge. It's like maybe a picnic table wide. There's a 9,000 foot drop on one side and maybe a 10,000 foot drop on the other side. And I just remember inching my way across and thinking like, we might actually do this thing. It's probably hard to really even remember what you were thinking at the
0: top of Everest because you're oxygen deprived, you're exhausted. But what went through your mind when you finally got there?
1: (laughs) Well, I actually do remember pretty well. And no matter what faith you are, you say some kind of prayer to the universe. Like, oh, my God, I'm standing on this island in the sky at 29,000 feet. And so, yeah, I was incredibly grateful to my team who had helped uh, get me there. Uh, And then you take a few photos and you hug and you cry. And then you, you never really truly let your guard down because you have to get down. Edmund Hillary said, it doesn't really count unless you get down alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you got I mean, yeah, this focus. is a mountain where when
0: people <laughs> die on that mountain, some of their
1: bodies are still up there because it's too dangerous to get them down, right? Yeah, and then 90% of accidents happen on the way down. Because if you think about it from a technical sense, if you fall on the way up, you fall into the mountain. If you fall on the way down, usually you've tripped and you've. Cartwheel down the mountain. That's super dangerous. So most accidents happen on the way down. So I just remember thinking, okay, this is where it matters. But yeah, I mean, I was thinking about my my daughter, Emma, and my wife, and just thinking, you know, don't be an idiot up here. Be careful. Every step counts.
0: That is Eric Weyhenmayer right here on LiveWire. Now coming up, Eric is going to tell us about his latest endeavor, which is kayaking. And he's also going to talk about how a recent innovation, something called a brain port, has literally
1: changed the way he sees the world. When I'm feeling these images with my tongue, my brain is actually imagining visually what the thing is in front of me and what the scene looks like. It's really, really cool. That is coming up
0: right here on LiveWire. Don't go anywhere. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Foley. Fully has desks and chairs and things that keep your body moving. Their Jarvis standing desk has been reviewed as the best on the market, but don't believe those reviews. Believe me, because I use a Jarvis desk when I'm recording live wire on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. And it's amazing. It keeps me in motion keeps that blood flowing, keeps that creativity going, and uh, whatever kind of work you do, I know you're going to do that work better if you are using some of the stuff that Fully makes. They know that standing desks are not just about standing, so they also carry chairs that promote healthier ways to sit. They have got it all over there at Fully, and they're just some of the nicest people and best supporters of Livewire you could ever imagine. So go check out what they're doing at fully.com Livewire to get more information. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. This week, our theme is making it work, and we are talking to someone who has done that for most of his life, adventurer Eric Weyenmaier. He's climbed Mount Everest. He's kayaked the Grand Canyon. Uh, By the way, he's also blind. His latest book is No Barriers. There was a fascinating New Yorker article about you, uh, how you rock climb now uh, with this camera on your forehead and a, a plastic lollipop in your mouth that sends electric shocks to your tongue so that you can kind of see the, the the face of the rock wall. Explain to me how this works.
1: Well, back in like 2005, I was really lucky to go out to University of Wisconsin to meet this pioneer in neuroplasticity named Dr. Paul Baccarita. And he had this concept that if one part of your brain has trauma or damage, it can Another part can take over and recircuit. And of course, like everyone thought he was crazy, and then it turned out he was right. And he, out of that research, built this device called the BrainPort. Uh, and it's a video camera that sits on a pair of glasses, and it translates that digital image through a microprocessor onto a plate that I wear on my tongue. And those light images are translated to tactile images, little vibrating pixels that I wear on this plate on my tongue. So it works against contrast, so like say I'm in a rock gym and I'm looking up at a a rock hold and it contrasts the wall behind me. I can see the shape of that hold on my tongue, and my brain can match up the information of where it is on my tongue, where it is out in space, and I can reach out and I can thank uh, you so much I can grab that hold. It takes a lot of work, like learning a language, you know, really immersive uh focus I'm usually pretty exhausted afterwards, but The visual cortex of my brain is lighting up. And that's the way Paul Baccarita envisioned it. He said, you see with your brain, not with your eyes. So if you can create another portal into the brain, then essentially your brain will see. And that's the way it is for me. That must have been a, a pretty emotional moment for you
0: once you had really started to kind of learn how to use this technology. And I mean, when you came down off the rock after this thing was really sort of working for you, I mean... yeah. That must have been really emotional.
1: Well, honestly forget rock climbing. The coolest part was actually hanging out with my kids and I play rock, paper, scissors with them and I could play games like war. And I can see the cards. My son, his name's Arjun and at five years old, we he came back from Nepal. We adopted him into our family And so I was teaching him how to read using the BrainPort, seeing the the words on the card. And one day he was was learning English and he heard a joke in kindergarten. He told me this joke and I zoomed the camera into his face and I could see his, I could see his smile. I could see his mouth. I could see his, like I'd forgotten what a face looks like. And that was emotional. (laughs) I'm getting emotional right now thinking about it. But seeing a rock was cool. Seeing my kids was like mind blowing.
0: We're talking to Eric Wymer. His new book is No Barriers. He's an adventurer, a mountain climber, kayaker, and also is blind. You kayak through the Grand Canyon, and I've seen video and pictures of this, and it it looks pretty rough out there, man. Like, I mean, how how, how are you able to do that?
1: You know, I said same with climbing. I just had to figure out a bunch of systems. How was I going to navigate this insanity, like the chaos of the rapids? How was going to h- hear my guides? Uh, yelling directions and, you know, sometimes getting separated by 20-foot waves. How I was going to, you know, learn to balance my kayak when I can't see waves hitting me from the left and right and sometimes, you know, slamming into rocks sideways and getting spun around and just on and on. I mean, the questions were sort of endless, I guess.
0: Is it enjoyable to do that or is it just sheer terror followed by relief that you didn't die when it's over?
1: Uh, It's a fine line. Um, I, and I want to just be a little careful here because I I don't do these things to prove that blind people can do this or that, you know, that that's a shallow thing and, and eventually it'll probably get you killed, you know, if you're like, I'm going to do that just because people say I can't. I, I try to do these things out of a sense of discovery and joy and, you know, pioneering a pathway forward. It's so uh, addicting and really uh, fulfilling to me. So... In a way, yes, it was enjoyable, but there was a lot of fear to fight through to get to the rare moments of joy.
0: (laughs) Just on a practical level, um, what are a couple of the strategies that you've employed? I mean, you mentioned the idea of water coming at you from some odd angle you're not expecting and it moves your kayak in a way that you can't anticipate. How do you actually get through all of
2: that?
1: tons of, tons of practice, thousands of hours of practice over the six years. Um, a lot of the kayaking training for me was working on how to sort of discipline my brain, uh, not to sort of sabotage my experience. I mean, I think a lot of times the, the weight of all the psychological stuff that we put on ourselves is more of a determining factor than the physical danger. So I had to like, sort of, let go of that weight and just be there and there were a couple rapids one of them in particular was called upset it was a huge rapid and harlan was like you got to just slow down and experience this place you got to see this river like sure it'll beat you down sometimes and it's bigger than you and it's more powerful than you but it's also an amazing journey you got to like embrace that journey and i like when harlan was talking to me like that i was sort of thinking about blindness like Yeah, this thing that's bigger than me, but, you know, it doesn't mean life is like a terrible place where bad things always happen. Yeah, you're going to get beat down sometimes, but yet the journey is kind of a good one. And that's the way the river was for me. So I went through this rapid. I controlled my breathing. There was a huge just roar of water slamming against the rock wall to my left. To the right was this massive hole. I could just hear this guttural hole to my right. And I was squeaking this line right between. And it was just like I was there in the, in the river, like almost no separation between me and the thing that I was experiencing. And man, when you experience 45 seconds of that after six years of training, um, I sat there on the beach afterwards and just reflected for hours because I thought that's what you're going for. You know, you're going for this moment where you feel connected with the world in this way that I never almost felt before. You're obviously an inspiration to a lot of people, and uh, you've got this
0: great website, touchthetop.com, where you tell your story and the stories of other people who have overcome a lot of uh, what would seem to be obstacles in in climbing and, and, and being outdoors and going on adventures. Do you ever feel a certain amount of pressure now has built up because you are this person who is seen as a quote-unquote inspiration to others?
1: Well, it's funny that you use the word inspiration because that's always used as a compliment, that's really cool, but the double-edged sword of it is that people can sit back and they can say, look, that guy's inspirational and I'm just a regular person over here and it becomes another barrier. Yeah, I've felt pressure, but in a good way, like don't blow it, right? Like on the knife edge ridge again, don't Mm -hmm. blow it. Use this experience to help people break through barriers in their life and those barriers come in all shapes and sizes. Most of the world have invisible barriers. They don't have, bl- they're not blind, you know, and, and those are the most profound barriers I think out there, the the ones that you can't see. So it also makes me feel like we're all in the same club, you know, doesn't matter who you are, whether you can see or not, we're all sort of in this big club trying to flail and blunder our way forward to the things we're after in life.
0: Okay, before we let you go, Eric, I have to ask you about one Weird footnote of your life, <laughs> which is uh, a lot of people heard your name long before they knew about any of your of your exploits as far as rock climbing, mountain climbing, et cetera, because a local TV station was about to interview you. And one of the anchors made like one of the weirdest on air gaffes I think I've ever heard of. You were kind of, your name was sort of in one of the first viral videos that ever existed. I'll just play this for people. Right
3: after the break, we're going to interview
1: Eric Weyhenmayer, who climbed the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. But
3: he's gay. I mean, he's gay, excuse me, he's blind.
0: <laughs> where were you when you heard that tape? Well, I guess you were about to be interviewed is where you were, right?
1: Yeah, I was just finishing the Seven Summits, and I was doing this uh, satellite radio interview and with all these morning shows, and... Uh, and then this lady uh, came on and did that and uh, I I just laughed I thought it was great because look nobody hears about your Everest climb but then you know your gay clip on YouTube goes to like number one millions of views people were writing um, rap songs about it and uh, and doing their own uh, portrayals of that video like on YouTube and there's endless comments people have way too much time on their hands but there's you know, thousands of comments about that video. And uh, I just thought it was gold. It was so great. So I love being the first gay blind climber. I think it's great. I think it, I embrace it. Did you ever
0: end up talking to that news anchor, like off the air? Like, did she, was she
1: super mortified? I mean, she was mortified. She'd had on a, before that, I found out she'd had a gay activist on. And sh- and so she, she was just like, like reading the wrong, you know, in her brain reading the wrong thing. After that video, she got a promotion, and she went on to Dallas. And she was really embarrassed at first, and then uh, she decided to have me on and explain it. And we we played the video, and we both cracked up, and we had a great time. And yeah, so I've gotten to know her, and we we think it's awesome now. That's
0: great. I mean, you, you're taking it all in stride, considering that I mean, you've climbed the seven summits, which would be the the highest mountains on every continent. You've, as we mentioned, climbed Mount Everest. You've You've kayaked the Grand Canyon. You've done some pretty amazing stuff in your life, Eric, and you may be best known for somebody having a weird gaffe on TV, but it sounds like you're rolling with that, like oh, everything else in your life.
1: I love it. I mean, one of the things we talk about constantly at No Barriers is this idea of alchemy, uh, turning you know, potentially bad things into great things, and uh, it's it's a beautiful art form to be able to do this throughout your life. Now, being called a gay climber is not bad. I think it's it's awesome, but... I speak for a living to and I build, help you know, companies build teams and things like that and I show it every talk. It's, it is absolute gold. It was gold for my uh, speaking career.
0: <laughs> well, Eric Weichenmair, thank you for coming on LiveWire today. Thank you so much. That's Eric Weichenmair here on LiveWire. His latest book is No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon and it's out now. You're listening to Live Wire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our theme this week is making it work. And our next guest is a Portland comedian who grew up in that classic hotbed of stand-up comedy hilarity, Benghazi Libya. But when this guy got to the U.S., the job that he really wanted to have was as a stand-up comedian. So while he was in college, he started performing at open mics and small little clubs, basically anywhere where they would let him tell his jokes. And now here he is, a full-fledged stand-up comedian who uses his jokes to try to illuminate the experience of being a Muslim living in the U.S. This is Mohammed El-Shecki, performing live on our show back in 2016.
4: So I, uh, I moved to the U.S. two years ago from Benghazi, Libya. What a great time to move to the U.S. <laughs> wow. You guys are killing it with democracy here. <laughs> Hey, uh, how does it feel to have an Arab guy mocking your democracy? Does it hit deep? Yeah? I know, I know. The other day, uh, my friend asked me and he was like, hey Mohanad, you're an Arab, I wanna ask you a question about Arabs. And because I represent all of them, I was like, yeah, sure, hit me up. He was like, why you guys look so mad all the time? I was like, we're not mad. We just feel like we are underrepresented here because every minority here in the US have their own month, like Black History Month and other months. I don't know, I'm not from here. (laughs) And and he was like, What I was like, what about ours? And he's like, you guys do have a month? And when he told me what month was that, I had to convince him for two hours that no shave November was not an Arab month. (laughs) So I was standing uh, with a friend in the park blocks and we were speaking in Arabic. And this guy who's a preacher comes to us and he's like, hey, you two, are you from the Middle East? I was like, no, I'm from Libya, which is in North Africa, completely different. And he's like, ah! sounds Middle Eastern to me, which is not how geography works, <laughs> shouldn't sound to you. I was like, hey, okay, no problem, the Middle East. What do you need? He's like, here's the thing, buddy. I think everything that came to the US from the Middle East should just go back to the Middle East. I was like, everything? And he's like, yes, everything that came to the US from the Middle East should just go back to the Middle East. I was like, okay, no problem. So we're going back. We're taking the Middle Eastern food carts. We're taking the hummus. And uh, Jesus Christ, Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, but he's one of us. And the guy was like, no, Jesus was white. I was like, no, no. If Jesus was white, his privilege would have saved him. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I don't know if you read the book. He doesn't make it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> my name is Mohamed al Thank you very much, that's my time, everyone.
0: That's comedian Mohanad Elshecki, performing on Livewire back in 2016. You're listening to a special Labor Day edition of the show. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. In this episode, we are featuring all kinds of people who are making it work. And up next, we've got Walter Martin. You may know him from his band, The Walkmen. I've been a huge fan of his for years. This is Walter performing the extremely aptly titled song for our theme this week, the song is called Jobs I Had Before I Got Rich and Famous. Take a listen to this.
2: Mowing lawn, saving up for a guitar when I was 15, and long and lean. Just like that grass, boy, I was green. <laughs> roses in Washington, DC, going off to college so I had to save up. But delivering roses really sucks. Sweating all summer in a slimy tux. But at least I made a couple bucks. Freshman in college, I was delivering pizza. But to deliver one pie was a half an hour round trip And college kids, man, they don't tip And so I quit And it was their loss I was the only driver not stealing from the boss And siphoning gas from students' cars Okay, this next verse actually has a character you might not know It's this guy, um... Philippe de Montebello, who was, uh, he's a real guy, who was the uh, director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art for many years. He's a very famous, like, French art historian. Uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's who Philippe de Montebello is. (laughs) Metropolitan Museum at the telephone switchboard When a caller would ask for Philippe de Montebello I'd transfer it to my apartment Where an unsuspecting fellow My roommate, Stuart, would be sound asleep he'd answer the phone And he heard the beep And pretty quickly he'd realize That he wasn't Philippe (laughs) Information counter At the Cloisters Museum And one day Billy Joel Walks in I take a long Long look at him A dignified old music man. And that's when I devised my plan. And that little plan has brought me here where the spotlight shine and the people all cheer. And the pretty girls flock from far and near to touch my hand and hear my song. And buy my T-shirts and sing along. God damn, this sure beats mowing lawns. Thank you.
0: That's Walter Martin. Thank you. That's Walter Martin, right here on Livewire. His latest album, My Kind of Music, is out now, and you can find out more information about Walter over at Walter Martin Music. Com. You're listening to a special Labor Day edition of LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical, un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. Our theme this week is making it work, and there are very few people who have done more to make work for other people, that is to create jobs, than our next guest. Lila Jana is the CEO of something called SamaSource. It's a nonprofit business that's trying to reduce global poverty by outsourcing tech jobs to unemployed people who are living in extreme poverty. We're talking less than $2 a day, uh, many of these people living in Africa. Now, if that sounds like it's kind of an impossible task, somehow Lila has made it work. And she recently jumped in the studio in San Francisco to talk to me about how this whole thing works. Let's uh, start by kind of laying out the scope of the problem with extreme poverty. How many people are living in extreme poverty in the world? And, and what do their lives look like just on sort of like a day-to-day basis?
3: So there are over a billion people living on less than $2 a day. And we typically don't realize that those numbers are already adjusted for purchasing power. So that's what $2 would buy you in the average American city in, uh, in recent times in a day. So we've done these extensive surveys, and it's shocking. We see that most people who are living on less than $2 a day in the region where we work in East Africa, um, in an urban area, are living in an informal settlement, a slum. Uh, so that looks like one kind of mud-walled hut with a metal roof over your head uh, that probably has holes in it. You're uh, living without access to sanitation, so many people are forced to go to the bathroom you know, right outside their one-room hut, um, which of course exposes children um, and themselves to all kinds of, of diseases and other problems related to not having any sanitation system. Um, You likely don't have reliable electricity. You don't have running water in your home. You don't have access to proper medical care. And I think the worst thing about living in extreme poverty is the fact that it conditions your brain to operate in scarcity mode. We now know that when you're hungry, when you don't know when your next meal is going to happen, um, that you're living in a constant state of stress, and this is perhaps the most damaging effect of poverty, that you can't make good, healthy, long-term decisions for yourself or your family when you're in a chronically stressed-out situation, and there's now plenty of neuroscience that confirms this.
0: Uh, One of the big points you make in this book, Give Work, is that the way that we have been trying to address extreme poverty, uh, a lot of it through charitable donations. Uh, You're saying that that really doesn't actually work. Why doesn't that work in your opinion?
3: So we've funneled trillions of dollars in aid from Western countries to sub-Saharan Africa in the last 60 years, and still we're seeing people at the very bottom living in abject poverty. And we haven't seen the sort of lift that we were hoping for with these aid programs. And if you actually dig into the flow of this money, you see that it typically flowed from one government to another government rather than directly to the people. And it typically was invested in things like infrastructure or uh, incentives for companies to go and set up shop in a poor country and other things that don't necessarily create employment or income at the very bottom of the pyramid. It sounds really obvious, but we now know that the best way to address poverty for the lowest income people is to give them cash directly. And there are two ways to do that. You can give them cash in the form of a handout, or you can give them cash in the form of a job. Jobs are preferable for a number of reasons. They're more sustainable. If you're able to set up a business that at least gets some of that donation capital returned back to the business, it becomes a cycle that's more sustainable than a one-off donation. They're better for people's overall well-being because work comes with a sense of community and pride and dignity. Work typically also comes with training and skill building that doesn't happen when you just get a handout.
0: You're listening to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. We have Lila Jana here, the author of Give Work, and also the CEO and the founder uh, of SamaSource, uh, which is has really sought to create jobs in places where there is extreme poverty in the tech industry. Explain how how Samasource actually works. How have you been pulling this off?
3: Sure. So I started about nine years ago, and I had been following the work of Thomas Friedman and this revolution that was happening all over the world, where the internet for the first time was reaching some very low-income places. And I had learned through a lot of working in Africa that there were millions of young people who were finishing secondary school in places like Ghana and Kenya and Uganda who could read and write English, who were capable of understanding the basics of using a computer, and uh, who could easily do things like data entry and other types of basic digital tasks, but they just had no exposure to this industry. And so I thought, why not try to build a social enterprise, you know, nonprofit outsourcing model where I could train people who came from really poor backgrounds but had a basic education to do this kind of work from slums and rural areas where they happen to live. We've helped 35,000 people move from a household income of under $2 a day to well over $8 a day which in the world of international development and poverty reduction is a huge increase. And what's more is that the model is now profitable, so we could replicate this all over the world.
0: We're talking to Lila Jana. Uh, her new book is called Give Work. She's the CEO and the founder of Sama Source, which works to create jobs in places where there's extreme poverty. I, I saw in the book that you reprinted an angry email somebody sent you about basically they called you an asshole for... Like moving American jobs. Is that, I mean, is is that a common reaction when when somebody hears that you're actively trying to uh, take jobs that would possibly be happening in America and move them uh, to somewhere else?
3: It was at the beginning, and I think now we're starting to understand how these economic systems work. If we want to have lower cost food and clothing and data services and technology platforms, we have to accept that some of this work will be done in places that have a lower cost of labor. So our primary moral duty is ensuring that people here at home are given access to the types of training that lead to good jobs in the new economy. And at the same time, that the goods that we consume are produced using good labor practices and, uh, and fair wage principles through, through the supply chain. But I think we no longer live in a sort of either-or world, where either you're helping someone in America or you're helping someone in Kenya. I think we can do justice to both sets of people by consuming things ethically.
0: You're listening to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're talking to Lila Jana, author of the book Give Work?, When we come back, Lila explains what it's like to split your time between some of the richest business people in Silicon Valley and some of the poorest communities on planet Earth.
3: You know, we're living in these silos and we can't sort of help it. And I do feel that part of my job is to bridge those gaps and to try to represent the reality for people on the other side of the world to people here and vice versa.
0: Don't go anywhere. That's coming up on LiveWire. Hey, during this week's episode of the LiveWire podcast, we would like to extend a very special thank you to some members, including Matt Janke of Seattle, Washington. Hey, I know Matt. He Runs a couple of amazing restaurants in Seattle. You should check them out. And Jeffrey Wright of Portland, Oregon. I don't know if I know Jeffrey, but I look forward to meeting him. Support from members like Matt and Jeffrey is a huge part of making LiveWire possible. So thank you very much to Matt and Jeffrey for supporting this episode of the LiveWire podcast. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. Our theme this hour is Making It Work, and we are talking to Lila Jana, who is the author of a new book called Give Work, which talks about creating jobs in impoverished areas uh, as a way of improving people's lives. She's the CEO and the founder of a company that does that called Samosource. Um, and this book that, that you have out now it's, it's aimed at trying to explain ways to help people sort of escape the gravitational pull of poverty, um, which is something that you write about your great-grandfather, I believe it was, in India, kind of managing to do somehow. How did he pull it off?
3: My great-grandfather, uh, Sharat Chandrajana, came from a fishing village um, in rural Bengal, and uh, he came from a low-caste family, and was identified in elementary school by the nuns who ran his school as a really talented young boy. And so he was given a lot of educational opportunities. And he recounted to my my mother how often he was basically told he would amount to nothing because he came from a poor background, and how much his life was kind of a struggle to prove all those people wrong. So when he finally became a high court judge in Calcutta many years later. He had a side pro bono practice where he would take on the cases of tribal people who had come from rural parts of Bengal uh, to try their cases before the high court in the city. And my mother described having rooms of their house devoted to housing these these people who came from all over the countryside to try their cases and how impactful that was, um, you know, in, in her own philosophy of, of life and work. And I, I do think that his belief system informed uh, what I do today.
0: Well, then what was your life like growing up in the States?
3: So I'm I'm a first-generation American. My parents came here in the late 70s, and my father would often remind my brother and I that we, we won the birth lottery by being born in a rich country and being given so many amazing educational opportunities. And it was tough growing up. We never had enough money. There was a lot of uncertainty. I think I grew up with the sort of background stress that many immigrant families endure. And I think that gave me... Um, both an appreciation for people who don't have much and are striving um and also a sort of resilience um that comes from having spent so much time trying to figure out how to avoid poverty myself and it is a it's a wonderful gift as an entrepreneur to not be afraid of what could happen if you if you lose it all
0: uh, you, it seems like you you have this kind of double life where you you know you you live in San Francisco and you're an entrepreneur and and uh, a, you, you sort of rub elbows with a lot of, like, high-flying, you know, tech and thought leaders. And then also part of your life is spending time with people who are just living at the absolute economic margins on planet Earth. What kind of emotional toll does that take on you, to go between those two worlds?
3: Oh, it's it's so hard. It's It's heartbreaking so often. <laughs> I am at a tech party and I hear someone say something that I think in the moment to be really ridiculous, like a new startup idea that involves creating yet another useless technology for people already living in, in the 1%, debating with the founders of a company that, um, that has a new smart oven. That's a really cool product, but you know it it, lets, it uses artificial intelligence to optimally prepare your food. And so while that's really cool, I'm sitting here thinking, I just got back from Uganda, where people can't afford, you know, charcoal for their basic cook stoves and are cutting down endangered trees to be able to cook their very paltry meal. It just, it made my blood boil for a second. And then I kind of realized, you know, this tech founder, he's never been exposed to that rural Ugandan setting, he has no idea. you know. And if I were able to show him that, I'm sure it would dramatically alter his perception and he might feel a calling to do something about it. You know, We're living in these silos and we can't sort of help it. And I do feel that part of my job is to bridge those gaps and to try to represent the reality for people on the other side of the world to people here and vice versa.
0: Uh, what would you like People's Takeaway to be from this book?
3: So many of us are incensed by the current political situation in the U.S. and feel like we can't do anything because we have to wait till the next election. But in reality, every second, every time a cent leaves our bank account, we are voting on the kind of world we want to live in by what we consume. I think about apartheid in South Africa, which ended in large part because masses of consumers and businesses got together and said, this is unacceptable and we're going to boycott exports from South Africa. And that made a huge difference. And so I think we can marshal the same consumer um, and business forces on the opposite side, not just to say no to a bad regime, but to say yes to the right sorts of things. So that's my call to action, is make sure that as much as you can control it, that every dollar you spend is going towards businesses that make the world a better place.
0: Well, Lila, Jana, you've done the unthinkable. Uh, you've made me have some amount of empathy for a tech entrepreneur who's creating a smart oven. Uh, I just didn't think, <laughs> I didn't think I had that in my heart, but I do now, thanks to you. <laughs> and also, I've, uh, I've learned a lot through this book about uh, about what can really happen in some of these areas when, when you give people the chance. So um, great job on the book, and thanks for being on Livewire.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Luke.
0: That's Lila Janna. Her new book, Give Work, Reversing Poverty One Job at a Time, is out September 26th. You're listening to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our theme this week is Making It Work. Our next guest knows all about that. He's Jason Isbell, and he's been making it work in the music industry for some time. He collaborates often with his wife, Amanda Shires, and when they came on LiveWire in 2014, we asked them for their secret for making on-stage and off-stage harmony. Let's take a listen to that. Thank you. I was watching a lot of videos of you playing, uh, and uh, you, the two of you play together all the time. You travel all the time. You're married. You're, you're work. You've got a baby in the oven now, and you guys don't get tired of each other.
4: Nope.
1: No. <laughs> Really, no, Never. no. I mean, sometimes for like 30 seconds, you know.
0: During a song or just like when you're at the hotel? <laughs> it could happen at any time. <laughs> you know, and then we, then we figure out how to, how to get around that, how to solve that, that problem. Any advice? You guys seem very smitten with each other. A Lot of Netflix. <laughs> that was not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> That's what we call it. (laughs) Ah, I get it. All right. Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires. (laughs)
4: Mountains rough this time the highway down they don't warn the town I've been fighting second gear for fifteen miles or so trying to beat the angry snow I know every town worth passing through What good does no one do with no one to show it to?
0: That's Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires right here on LiveWire. Jason's latest album, which also features Amanda, is called The Nashville Sound, and it is available now, and it is amazing. You should definitely check it out. All right, that is going to do it for our special Labor Day edition of LiveWire. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Also, special thanks to our guests, Eric Weyhemer, Lila Janna, El Sheki, Walter Martin, Jason Isbell, and Amanda Shires. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is executive producer and co-creator of LiveWire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Lauren Masterson is our development director. And Laura Harden is our marketing director. Tim Harkins is our operations manager. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. LiveWire is made possible by the generous support of our members... Special thanks this week to member Maria Semple. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because Maria is an author. She wrote the books Where'd You Go, Bernadette, and Today Will Be Different. We had her on LiveWire, and I guess she liked it so much that she became a member. Thanks, Maria. If you want more information about our show or how to listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter or even become a member like uh, Maria Semple did, you can head over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
4: Thank you. PRI Public Radio International